On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. In June, the foundation approved $85 million in new projects to accelerate discovery and inspire curiosity. Requests for funding will be accepted until August 16th. Learn more at templeton.org. Darnell Moore embodies, for me, an emerging story we've barely begun to tell ourselves about new understandings of change and healing in this young century, the self-reflection that goes hand-in-hand with social evolution. I don't want to become a better man because y'all know what, what I've been told manhood is. It's not anything I'm trying to aspire to. I want to become a better human person. And if we can help people sort of journey to that place, we might find ourselves holding on to the keys that can unlock the cages that are keeping so many of us who have been identified, or identify as men, are socialized into manhood. Freedom might be on the other side of that. So, you know, I talk about unbecoming, not becoming a man, but what it might mean to unbecome, or failing at this project, this cage, these ideas of manhood that have been um, sort of mapped onto us. I think, to me, that is where our freedom lies. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Darnell Moore tells the story of his formation in his book, No Ashes in the Fire. He's grown wise through his work on successful and less successful civic initiatives, including Mark Zuckerberg's plan to remake the schools of Newark. And he's a key figure in the ongoing, underpublicized, creative story of Black Lives Matter. He joined me in a room full of social entrepreneurs at the 2019 Skoll World Forum in Oxford, England. Thank you. Um, so happy to be here. We've, we've wanted to come to this forum, and this is the year it was possible. And to be here with Darnell Moore is really exciting. So I'm just going to leap right in. I want to say this is a very beautiful book. No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. Um, highly recommended. Darnell, you know, I, um, I start most of my conversations with a question about the spiritual or religious background of someone's childhood, however they would describe that. And that can mean so much more than religious formation. It can be what was happening with your body and spirit. And as I read um, your book in particular, there's a word you use a lot, which is a, kind of a magnetic and surprising word, which is magic. You know, you talk about the everyday, ordinary magicians who learn to create life among death-dealing cultures of hatred and lies. So what, what is that magic as you've experienced it in your life? Um, well, first, it's, it's magic to be sitting in conversation with you. <laughs> Um, it's so funny when you, when you say that, the first sort of image that comes to my mind is um, the black family I grew up around, uh, a, a people who lacked, according to all standards, a type of wealth. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of money, but they were in possession of a lot of love and care. And if I knew nothing else, I knew that the people around me, even though media... And, and the sort of larger world tended to characterize the people who I called family, the place that I called home as like the ghetto, as the hood, mm. as almost lacking virtue. Um, here were people that sort of like made something out of nothing. 
I talked to somebody earlier and said, like, it's the type of family where you would look in the cupboards and like, as a child, I didn't see any, I'm like, I didn't see any food. How did they make this full dinner? Hmm. But they sort of made something out of nothing. All that to say, that's how I sort of lived my life. I lived my life as a sort of dreamer, always thinking about how I would and could pull from whatever sort of resources or love that I had to make something of a life. You start your book with, uh, it, yeah, I was talking about, talking about another use of the word magic, you know, the childlike magic. And you, you focus that, we, we see a picture of you, um, a picture of your face in which that phrase is absolutely, comes to life, right? <laughs> is evident. Um, you wrote, um, it took years before I realized the image in my mama's picture was beautiful. With skin too brown, big lips, and a wide nose, I often turned away from my reflection as I grew up, there were invisible forces moving about like ghosted hands. A hand would touch my cheek and steer my head and eyes away from the mirror. It was unseen but felt, and it needed to be named. I feel like that's such an apt image for this moment we inhabit together, where there's this naming of things that have been true, but... Many of us could turn away from them and even make others turn away from themselves. Um, I, you know, I've been thinking about this moment. You know, we're a culture that's been taught to, to lie and to love lies. We are, I think, within a sort of moment that is asking of us, or, or, or so many of us are pointing fingers at the big monsters in the room, um, whether that's within um, a range of movements that are centered on uh, rape culture and sexual assault or, or racism and such, but no one really ever take the time to think about what it might mean to to point the finger back itself and, and examine the, monst the monstrosities within us. So self-reflexivity, self-reflection, mm -hmm. honest reckoning is something that we do not like. <laughs> um, a big part of my, my writing in the book was I really wanted to model um, and not be even beyond modeling. I just wanted to be honest and say, like, it's going to be impossible for me to talk about my dad and all the things that he did and, and all the ways in which he showed up as a monster in my life or the world are homophobes. And your, your dad was in and out of jail. He was. And, and he was a person who could be incredibly loving and tender to you and also could hurt your mother. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and I tried to write about him in a complex way, but I also realized that, um, the turn to self and my need to also think through the ways that he and I were shaped by the same sort of forces was really critical. Mm. It was really healing for me. The reason why I was able to forgive him for all that he, I, I observed and witnessed him doing um, is because I finally realized when I, when I realized that the distance that I thought we, that existed between us, the moral distance <laughs> yeah. was quite short. You know, I didn't physically abuse girls and women in my life. Um, but I certainly was privileged to go out into the world and be free because I was the oldest boy. I was never questioned about things that I wanted to do in life in ways that say my sisters were. 
Um, and I kept thinking, oh, so I benefited from patriarchy, these words we like to use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I benefited from this sort of position of like malness um, in the same ways that he did. And it, it's just really important, I think, for me. For, it was important. It is important for me to reckon with self. But isn't that how we get to sort of transformation? Yes. And what feels important to me, too, is even when you begin with the picture of you as this beautiful, beaming child. Thank you. you yeah. <laughs> you're still, and you're still beautiful. Um, you, this picture of you is you, your quest for this, for self-knowledge, for justice, for us to tell the truth and, and free ourselves from the cages these lies have put us in is about recovering joy. Mm. You want to recover that smile you had on your face as your birthright, and actually as all of our birthright. You know, it's so funny. I, was, um, I had gotten so used to, to believing that my childhood lacked smiles mm. because that's what trauma does, you know? Um, it, it was sort of the smiles were overshadowed by a lot of the violences that I witnessed, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Until I started looking at pictures. So in my mind, like, I just could not remember myself as a seven-year-old kid on a big wheel with, like, socks up to my knees, um, playing with, like, making dirt sandwiches and mud pies and all this stuff uh, with a big smile on my face until I looked at the pictures and I started laughing because I'm like, oh, I did smile. And then it made me think, how, how, how did that little boy find a smile maybe the day after watching his mom being brutalized by his father, right? Or how, how does a, did a 14-year-old get up and, and find a smile um, after being called names by friends or, or being attacked by friends? And it reminded me of the power that's, and this is what I mean by magic again, hmm. um, what it means to summon strength from within oneself in spite of what's going on, um, what it means to like be alive, and, and making life possible and dancing and sweating and enjoying the company of others, even as the fire is burning, mm-hmm. which is not to, to minimize the fires that burn in our lives. No, but it's in some ways we have to take seriously and keep walking towards that joy to stay alive, right? To stay whole, to come yeah. out the other side whole. Um, Camden, New Jersey is also very much a character in your story. You were reborn there, right? Yes. You grew up there. Yes. Um, it was Walt Whitman's Invincible City. Mm. And when you were growing up, it was a place that journalists would call the most dangerous city in America. And um, you got out, right? You left and then came back. And I think you didn't originally come back because that's where you wanted to be. And I think like, you're a writer and you also know how strangely, mysteriously, the more personal you can be, the more vividly personal you can be, the more universal the story becomes. But in this context, I think also this story of Camden, New Jersey, is the story of cities all over our country and all over the world. Yes, it is. It seems to me, I want to talk about that too, because when you came back, you got involved in some, and this is a room full of social entrepreneurs, you know, really good efforts but in which people were coming to save Camden, but kind of treating it like a faraway country that they were going to develop. Yeah. You know, I, so I would love, I would have loved to tell this, tell the story. Like, you know, I went back to Camden, like fired up. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I was hesitant to go home. I didn't want to return home. And, 
you know, I ended up having to go back because nobody would hire me. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I got to go back to Camden. Even though you did end up getting those great grades. And I did get Getting good into good schools. Didn't and, matter. You yeah. know, I, um, I ended up home and I ended up living in uh, a house as part of a, what was called an urban ministry um, with what they would call urban missionaries. And the other people that lived in this home with me were all white all of whom had come from other states and other countries to the place that I was running from. The house, you'll be surprised to know, was literally about three to five minutes walking distance from my mom's house. And I was just like, God, this is like hilarious. Like, <laughs> you want to talk about a joke? I was raising my fist to the air. Like, how dare you? Like, not only are you sending me home, but I got to like, my mom live around the corner. Um, but it was such, I'm so grateful that that happened. I, I was making, you know, I, wasn't, I don't think that's called, that's not a wage, but we were paid a $30 a week, I think, mm. living allowance. So if people are opting in to getting paid $30 a week, this tells you the type of, and I'm going to use the word privilege. We, we sort of use that word and throw it around. But to make a choice like that, to fly into Camden, to tell you the sort of worlds that people were coming from. But there was this way that we would go out and do these ask at churches on like a Sunday, we would go to the church and we would talk about the city and I, people would be talking about the city as if it was this space <laughs> that I didn't come from, a, a space that I didn't know. And I felt woefully uncomfortable with the way that they were able to manipulate the sort of, uh, we call it trauma porn. Mm, yeah. Yeah. To get people to feel. And I'm all, I was thinking like, if I have to go down a list in order, especially on a Sunday service, and lament about what else communities that we could other we might otherwise know what was happening about if we actually enter those communities <laughs> as you know if this is what it takes to get people to feel and therefore give money to this urban ministry then then it showed a type of a lack of true care to mm-hmm. me, um, and that bothered me. You also later on, and I mean, this is a very different story, but it feels a little bit connected to me. You ended up working on this project that was funded by Mark Zuckerberg to heal the schools in Newark. And I think that was a complicated experience like this other one. It wasn't all bad and it wasn't all, it wasn't all stuff you would criticize. But what did you take out of those experiences about what you think really is needed to actually heal, to actually transform? Because none of those things you experienced didn't, didn't affect that. Yeah. Um, you know, what I will say is that those same folk, by the way, um, I, I felt so critiqued in that moment because these were the folk that were also providing like after school tutoring and activities to my cousins. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. So there's right. that on the one hand, but then there are sort of like the systemic challenges you know, when I was working um, in Newark doing um, sort of school reform work as part of a project that was largely funded by uh, the, the Facebook Zuckerberg money, what I learned was that, you know, sometimes what we imagine to be our good is not always our best, is not always great. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the good can be commoditized. Mm-hmm. So there were so many lessons that were learned from that particular experience. Namely, one, you know, anytime that we're attempting to do community engagement work, 
and it's funny that we what we would call it community engagement work are working on in community with with vulnerable peoples and our groups who I like to say exist on the edges of the edges of the margins, but refuse to center the very people you say you are in community with. Um, you know you're starting off in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. What do you and what would that look like? So it to looks like them, saying things like them. you know, yeah. I, you know, it looks like before we go in with a with a, sort of become the architects of a plan to tell you what transformation looks like, I actually sit down with the people and ask them what it is that they need, mm-hmm. what it is that they desire, uh, what ails them, what what is their sort of their what is their freedom dream, as Robin Kelly would say. And so many times what we do, we fly into communities like out of these sort of helicopters, salvific helicopters with ideas and plans because, you know, we're social entrepreneurs um, and we, we have innov- innovative things to do and we have used best practices <laughs> and we have tried and tested um, and evaluated and have evidence-based models. Y'all see where I'm going. Um, and then, you know, so therefore we can come into the community as quote unquote experts. That's what neoliberalism tells us. Neoliberalism is about the dissolution of community about the lifting up of the big I, the expert in the room, never about community building. And the reminder that expertise lies in every one of us, that we all have analyses. And I think what it looks like then is moving ourselves out of the way Hmm. and creating space for everyone, particularly those we say that we're in community with, are working on behalf of, to do the dreaming, to be the architects of their own dreams, of their own transformation, of the worlds and communities in which they like to live. And then we, we, we journey along with them. Never, ever commandeering a journey, which is what tends to happen. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist and author Darnell Moore, who's also a key figure in Black Lives Matter. We're with a gathering of social entrepreneurs at the 2019 Skoll World Forum. Did you know Vincent Harding before he died, the civil rights not. leader? But I, I, I knew you of know his of legacy. Him? Yeah. Yes. I kept thinking... When I was reading you and thinking about this, of something he said to me, which I've never heard anybody saying quite this way, but, you know, he was a civil rights leader of a different generation, and you're, you are, you could be called a civil rights leader or freedom fighter of, of the next generation of that movement. And he was talking about, um, he actually took the, the lessons of the civil rights movement into communities, into to young people in hurting places. And like, what did we learn? What do we know? And he talked about um, experiencing, he was talking about being in conversation with a particular person, a young person, like many other young people operating in a situation where they felt it was just very, very dark all around them. And what they needed were, as he put it, some signposts, human lights, so live human signposts that would help them see the possibilities for themselves. And then he said this, I've always felt that one of the things that we do badly in our educational process, especially working with so-called marginalized young people, is that we educate them to figure out how quickly they can get out of the darkness and get into some much more pleasant situation. 
when what is needed again and again are more people who will stand in that darkness, who will not run away from those deeply hurt communities, and will open up possibilities that other people can't see in any other way except seeing it in human beings who care for them. It reminded me of like, you know, I was telling you that I was running away from Camden. Yeah. Partially because I, you know, this. That's no, what we do in this country. You know, we run. We run. <laughs> um, particularly because of this notion of, of these skewed notions of success or what success might mean or this American dream. But there is something to be said about um, sitting in discomfort and sitting within spaces of um, sitting in the darkness um, when I work, I did a lot of work and have done a lot of work with young people, particularly queer, transgender, non-conforming young people, many of whom were houseless. They did not have homes to go to. Um, some of whom had to make various choices about, uh, and negotiate every single day about where they're going to stay and what they're going to do to be able to stay at those places. All of this within this very sort of moment of like queer liberation and freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. And, so, so, so many times I, I wish I could sort of snap my finger um, and pull them out of sort of the, the the spaces of despair that some of them were in. And not all were in despair, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I, the reason why I talk about queerness as magic is because when I look at the, the way that these young people maneuver through the world and survive, I, I, I see nothing but strength. Um, but we resist the uncomfortable conversations. I mean, to love is to not lie. I had a friend who once said, um, how do you walk in these rooms and say the stuff that you say to white people? <laughs> and I'm like, well, if, if what, how are we going to heal mm-hmm. if we don't reckon with the truth? Mm-hmm. So all that to say, you know, sometimes I, you know, when I'm having these sort of conversations that I don't even think they are tough, I think that they are honest and they are signs of love. Mm-hmm. Folk don't want to be made comfortable. Why? I don't understand how that is to how that can be. Um, well, I do understand, right? I, I do understand how that can, how we resist um, discomfort. But I, what I do know is that we can only get to quote unquote light if we are willing to work so hard to travel through the darkness. Right, right. It's there's a way in which you could say it's intuitive to resist discomfort, but it could be a muscle we flex. It to get work. stronger, right? As you say, it's work. The context for you of love, and your point that that in fact to be honest is an act of love, and the opposite is not. Um, you come back a lot to love in the book, and I feel I hear the word love really rising up, really surfacing societally, and. It's also a ruined word, yes. culturally. So those of us who want to use that word, I mean, it holds all the complexity in the way you use the word and the way I'm finding really, really fantastic people using the word. It holds all the complexity that life does. And in fact, that love does when we, all of our experience of love is complex. It's funny because then, but when you use it politically, it sounds like a soft option. <laughs> um, it's the hardest thing in life, right? So you're working on creating a charter school as part of that renewal of the school system in Newark and it was you were designing this Sakia Gunn School for Civic Engagement 2010 which was um, and she was a young woman who was lesbian mm-hmm. and died she was murdered she was murdered and that project didn't work 
and you describe this moment where it was a meeting where people were weighing in on it and talking about it. it was just another form of segregation is what you were talking about, or they were against gay schools. And you talked about how that being in that meeting surfaced all of your personal drama with this, all of your personal hurt and the thought you had in that moment. And I want you to talk to us about this thought is Americans travel so quickly to the edges of our love. Uh, it's so, you know, I forgot I wrote that sentence. <laughs> um, it's important to just for me to say Sakia Gunn's name. Uh, it's she in her life. Um, I didn't have the, the fortune to, to know her, but certainly her death catalyzed a, a localized movement in Newark, New Jersey. She was murdered at 15. She was a black, lesbian, AG, what call aggressive, identified girl. Um, and it's important just to name her. Um, the school was a part of a new plan that was to be that was being um, fleshed out in Newark a, a bunch of new traditional public schools that were organized around certain themes and this the theme of the school was such, sort of civic engagement really helping students to think about social justice and some of the um, not some but a lot of the the residents pushed back against the idea because they had thought that we were trying to create a school solely for um, LGBTQIA students, which, as you know, is a public school that's impossible. Just because it was named after her. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But what was interesting about it is that some of the people in that room had I had been in, in organizing with in other capacities. You know, we would do anti-violence marches, and you know, and I had saw them. I've seen I was with them in other spaces, but this particular moment, um, the love that had been extended to the least of those within our community seemed to have stopped right there. Um, So the way that I describe it is, you know, I've been in, for instance, part of uh, marches for like movement for black lives and people out here and we're all like organizing and raising our fists and we're going in and we got Black Lives Matter shirts on. And I remember being told when we talked about remembering that trans woman of colors are dying and we should be marching on their behalf if we can march marching on their behalf too someone saying to me that's not why are you distracting us from our work or me being at the pride march in um queer new york city it's queer as it's supposed to be um and this is just a year and a, like a year and a half ago and um and we're out there having a rainbow good of a time until the black lives matter protesters come and disrupt the march and all of the happy folk who are here with me in our pride outfits are upset because now the Black Lives Matter folk are distracting from the real work of pride. What I'm trying to get at... Those are the edges of our love. The edges. Mm-hmm. The very limited ways that our sort of politics are organized around self-interested desires only. Mm-hmm. The things that touch us at our homes, quote unquote. But never ever the other stuff. As if a Black Lives Matter march is not a queer project, as if Sakia's life as a queer person is not also a part of what it means to, to fight for black liberation. And so we, we do, we stop like the, right there, which is why I like to be very clear that when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about costly love, not cheap hallmarkish love, mm-hmm. the way that we've come to imagine it. It was King say strong, demanding love. Yeah.
After a short break, I'll be back with Darnell Moore. And you can find this show again in three of our libraries at onbeing.org. Racial Healing, Reinventing Common Life, and Body Healing and Trauma. We created libraries from our 15-year archive for browsing or deep diving by topic, for teaching and reflection and conversation. Find all this and an abundance of more at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Darnell Moore at the 2019 Skoll World Forum in Oxford. He's a key figure in the constellation of social energies, including Black Lives Matter, that he and others call the Movement for Black Lives. He embodies a wisdom and courage about the forgiveness, self-reflection, and self-criticism that go hand-in-hand with social evolution as much as personal growth. I want to talk about Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Uh, you're, you're a journalist. That's one of, one of the hats you wear. Journalism in this country has not really covered Black Lives Matter, hmm. I don't think. And I think it's partly, well, there are probably many, many reasons, some of which are the reasons Black Lives Matter needed to begin in the first place. But some of it is because it doesn't look like a movement the way that has been defined, right? And so when there's a march or a protest, that gets covered. But you said um, but this is a whole completely different kind of thing. You said Black Lives Matter, this is how you defined it, is a radical social intervention. Mm. And it takes courage to stage a public disruption or act of civil disobedience. But often that is the only type of work the public might see. And the public also might only see that because that's the only thing journalists will cover, I'm adding that. The harder work, though, is that which occurs before and after public works of protest. It also takes tenacity to do all this work without being bought by political machines or donors. So there's a way in which I feel like we haven't even really started telling ourselves the story of Black Lives Matter the way 100 years from now somebody will tell it. And they probably may not remember what a hashtag is, but they may note that it was started by three women and two of them were queer, right? So I'm just, I wonder if you would just talk about your experience, like what that movement or social intervention has meant to you, how you got into it, and how you see its ongoing force in our world. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the question of movement for black lives or what some referred to as Black Lives Matter is um, it represents a constellation of groups, including the Black Lives Matter Global Networks and several others like the Dream Dream Defenders and Black Youth Project and, and Song and dot, dot, dot. I want to always talk about this particular movement as part of a long history of Black struggle within the context of the U.S. I don't see it as separate from... Um, but a, a continuation of, a part of a genealogy, an iteration of a movement. What was really, really key is that, you know, 
A couple things. You have a, some folk who have been involved in this iteration who I, I can remember being, you know, in, in conversations where we're, where we're very forthright about ensuring that the typical things like black, cisgender, male, charismatic leaders are not solely lifted up as the folk that we are ought to sort of listen to. And I'm bringing that up because that is what media was searching for. Exactly. That charismatic leader. Everybody that, was like, well, yeah. who's the leader? Yeah. And, you know, we wanted him to look like Martin Luther King. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because this is what we have somehow been led to believe that sort of movements ought to look like. But here you have this sort of decentralized or not even really decentralized, but a, what, what, what folks had called a leaderful movement that represented folk who weren't that. I mean, these were women, yeah. um, cisgender and transgender women, queer yeah. Yeah. women, um, folk who were not walking around in suits but had their pants sagging, um, folk who were not preaching behind a pulpit but, but, but who might have been on a corner of their neighborhoods. And it represented something very different in ways that sort of elided the American sort of way that we come to think about movements, which was its beauty. Mm-hmm. Which was its beauty. Mm-hmm. And also, so we talk about that. We talk about what I call the spectacularities of like of movement building, the stuff that you get to see, the stuff that people want to report about. But what folk don't see are the ways that communities are built and, and sort of, you know, the stuff that's happening outside of the camera. It looks like folk showing up for each other and putting money together to make sure that some of these organizers are getting um, therapeutic interventions for the traumas that they're experiencing. It looks like when the same folk that we lift up and we follow on Twitter and we put on a cover of our magazines who we glamorize because they, they may now become somebody that become a spectacle within the media, um, may not have money to pay their rent, may not even have a place to lay their head, may not even have food. It looks like people coming up with means so that that person can eat. Um, it looks like everyday struggle, not the spectacular stuff, not the stuff when the cameras are there. But what do you do when the everyday quote unquote microaggressions that we may ignore are eating you alive and you need support? It looks like when my father died, I didn't ask the Black Lives Matter New York chapter to come, but I turned, they found their way to Camden. And when I'm burying my father, I look over and you have a whole chapter of people who have become family who have come from various parts of the country who showed up. That's the stuff that we didn't miss, the spiritual elements of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've said that this... So for you, this started with Michael Brown and Ferguson and driving almost a thousand miles and being part of working with Patrice Cullors to create a... I don't know, what did you all call that? Just it was like a, f- a freedom ride of Yeah, sorts. freedom ride. And so people converging from all parts yeah. of the country. Um. Yeah, and you... we brought five hundred people. Five hundred people plus came um, that weekend, and this precipitated what would be the development of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. So those folk, you know, were encouraged to think about not only Ferguson, but the other Fergusons. That is the homes that they were going to go back to, yeah, and how they could take that energy back. So that really catalyzed um, the development of what is now the BLM Network, and um, to be part of that development process was um it was life-changing in, in so many ways I, you know we we did not intend um, when we were trying to get people over the course of two weeks to to travel across the country and show up together as a caravan to support the folk in Ferguson I should name here that we didn't just people didn't just show up there we actually worked um over the course of that two weeks to ask folk there what it is that they needed 
if they even wanted us to come. Mm-hmm. And we were, so many of us were changed for that. And, and I think, you know, the culture was changed for that. You did say, um, you did write, um, what I wish I could adequately detail, though, is the spiritual undercurrent, and here we go, the radical black love that flowed that weekend. And I also, I feel also that's not part of the story. That's not as, that's not vivid on the answer, right? Because it also gets covered as a political movement with a very clinical, technocratic 20th century lens on what a political movement is about. It's so true. I'm laughing. You see me smiling because I forgot that I said radical black love. And I was once in conversation with Bell Hooks and she said, what do you mean black love? Isn't it? It's love. Love is love. (laughs) And I said, no, black love. (laughs) And I, I told her I had to modify that. Um, precisely because for black people within a country who said that it loved all people, <laughs> to think about love as anything um, that is not politicized for some, um, it's a lie. So I say black love because I know what it means to be to to for, to exist in a space in a nation state that espouses love and says it loves black people, but its history attests to something very different. Um, black love to me, and I, I talk about this in the book, is exampled by my family. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I write about them, um, you know, our house being always packed and always full and people laying on couches and going to sleep on floors and three to four in a bedroom and everybody like at a table, play cousins, people I never met before who became cousins. Um, but the, the idea was anyone who ever showed up at our door, who knocked on the door and was in need, my people let them in. They never dispose of folk. You know, we, when we say, you know, we always say when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we're talking about all black lives and all aspects of black people's lives. And to talk about lives without attending to all of those things is to do a job that is not just. Mm-hmm. I also find in your, in your own work and writing, you... you Apply that reflection to yourself. Um, you've gone through really hard times. You went through 20 hard years. Um, you made a suicide attempt, and it had to do with sexual orientation and that and identity, but not just that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I'm going to read this just because I, I think it's such an amazing description of depression, which is also too simple a word. Um, I wanted to feel the sun's warmth on my face and be overcome by the light, but life felt cold and appeared dark. The run was endless. My body and mind were exhausted because I could never grab hold of the light. I now wonder how many black boys and men walk under dark clouds every day, hoping to appear closer to the stereotypical images of success and masculinity so many of us are taught to emulate. It wasn't that I was too weak to simply think differently or give a middle finger to hateful people. I wanted to die, which is to say, not live, which is to say, not have to be strong enough all the time to fight to exist, which is to say, fight at all, which is to say, I really want to live without having to fight so damn hard to exist. Um, that's the first time I think it's just me. I'm like, I'm just watering. My eyes are watering. Um, I don't think I've, I've not heard those. I, I've in all of the, I've done a lot of book talks. 
Um, we've never touched that passage, um, so it's, it had an impact on me, on me hearing it just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm really also thoughtful not only about the, the um, individual stakes, you know, how we are impacted as individuals uh, within the world, but I'm often think about the, the ways that we also are not allowed as a collective, as people, to wrestle with our sadnesses, to be honest, even those of us who believe that we are to be so strong, especially those of us who show up in rooms like this, mm-hmm. when the reality is so many people suffer these everyday types of darknesses and so many suffer alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about why it was important for me to write that because I needed someone to pick it up and to know that it is okay for us to not be okay. As simple as that. And that simple acknowledgement, I think, can be a doorway to healing for so many people. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with journalist and author Darnell Moore, who's also a key figure in Black Lives Matter. I wonder if you would tell the story of um, being with your father when he was dying. And the last words you spoke over his body, he was unconscious, but you were with him. I, I, um, my, my father passed away while I was writing this book. And at 55, um, which is important to note, you know, a black, black man dying very early um, is a thing. <laughs> um, and I often say he died of heart issues and both metaphorical and literal. Um, so, you know, you have a sense from what we talked about that our relationship was very strained. And, and I, um, growing up, being, you know, I was like the only son, the oldest child. And there's a way that the only son, the oldest child, <laughs> in this sort of patriarchal way of thinking, you know, dad dies, you better be ready to like take up the mantle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say things like, and when he passes, like, what am I going to say at his funeral? I don't have anything nice to say, you know? <laughs> Um, I rushed home. I was I was set to give a, a keynote actually, and um, and found out the news and 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 it felt something I did not expect to feel when the news came. I was about to, I was literally supposed to walk on stage, and I rushed home, rushed home, and got home on a flight. And I was so disoriented and got to the hospital, and he was unconscious. And my sisters and I were surrounding him in his bed, and I had like this transcendent moment. Mm that actually like changed my life. Um, I was a different person on the other side of it. Um, And it seemed to me like we, you know, it was here, there was no more time, like what more, we didn't need any more time to hold on to anger. The anger was gone. And it was the anger that had kept me from feeling really. Um, The things that I needed to feel to move forward and to forgive all this time. And you know what happens when you, the thing that fueled you all the time, the anger leaves, Um, you have to do some dealing. And we grabbed our hands with, at the reluctance of one of my sisters who just doesn't like, she doesn't like hospitals. And she's a Leo and she's just like very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> 
And she's like, well, y'all go ahead with that. <laughs> I'm like, this is your father. She's like, y'all go ahead. You know? But we grabbed hands and I said to him as he's unconscious, fly. And I, I know you're heavy. And I know the weights you have been carrying are heavy. Let them go and fly. And he soon after transition. Um, I thought I needed to... I, I thought, one, I needed him to do something for me. Like I was this little boy still in this grown man's body waiting for his dad to do some reckoning that he never was emotionally, spiritually mature enough to do. And I was waiting for him to get there. Um, but what I discovered was that I had come to an emotional, <laughs> spiritual place where I did not need him to do that for me mm -hmm. and was able to release him, not just him, but the anger the past, the past that chained us together. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would have written a different book um, and mm -hmm. I would have characterized him in a different way that did not honor his human complexity um, had he been alive um, before I finished it. Mm -hmm. mm. One thing you said after that story in the book is you said that whatever weighed him, the weights he'd been carrying, he could fly. They, they, yeah, I told him what I had learned to do in his absence. But it was you, you had that. That's what you're saying. I think um, I heard you in an interview somewhere else where you're talking about just the complexity of masculinity. And I mean, that is really something. That's one of these places where you um, are very self-searching. This discipline that you talk about that we all have to have, especially those of us on, you know, who want to be on the side of justice and righteousness have to constantly be, have to have a critical self-reflection. And um, there's a place in the book where you say something like, um, with all of my queer magic, that you realize you'd, you'd still had some, you had privileges of masculinity. Absolutely. In terms of how you were treated differently from your sisters and how mothers are with sons and, and women are with men. Um, so somebody was asking you, or I, I don't know what the question was, but it, you, this is what you said, which I just I'd like for you to reflect on, kind of as we as we close. Rather than asking the question, what might it mean to be a freer and better man? What might it mean to be a freer human being? Um, great way to um, to end, particularly because this is what I'm, my second book is going to be about. Plug. <laughs> 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 um, but I, I started, you know, we talk about toxic masculinity right now and, um, it's a thing, it's a hashtag and it's something that we employ everywhere we go. Um, and I often remind people to ask what it is that they're trying to get at by naming toxic masculinity as a thing. So a range of a set of behaviors, practices, ideas, and then I go, well, is, are those behaviors toxic or is it the idea that we create all of us together socially a, a box a sort of script that is called masculinity our manhood you all, you know we create these you do all know that yes and and i started to think well isn't it the fact that we create these things as one size fit all <laughs> frames that people are supposed to sort of figure out how to be big in toxic is not the idea, these ideas that we socially, collectively, somehow 
choose um, or force people to follow, socialize people into are not those things, the, the things that we need to challenge. And so therefore, I think of gender in many ways, masculinity, this, this notion of manhood as a cage for many people, as a too small box that does not allow for people to be hum, full so human So many beings. of our boxes. And we have so many boxes. Right? Yeah. So I am interested now. Like I tell, I don't, I don't want to become a better man because y'all, y'all know what, what I've been told manhood is. It's not anything I'm trying to aspire to. I want to become a better human person. And if we can help people sort of journey to that place, we might find ourselves um, holding on to the keys that can unlock the cages that are keeping so many of us who have been identified or identify as men are socialized into manhood. Um, freedom might be on the other side of that. So, you know, I talk about unbecoming, mm-hmm. not becoming a man, but what it might mean to unbecome are failing at this project, this cage, these ideas of manhood that have been sort of mapped onto us. I think to me, that is where our freedom lies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Darnell Moore is the U.S. Head of Strategy and Programs at Breakthrough, a global human rights organization. He's also Civic Media Fellow at the University of Southern California's Annenberg Innovation Lab. His book is No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. Special thanks this week to Cathera Green, Sierra Gonzalez, Matt McDonald, the technical team at the University of Oxford's Said Business School, and all the great people at the Skoll Foundation. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of The On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On being 
is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.